0: Well, thanks for that introduction, and uh, it's glad to. I'm just glad that that 30 years of pursuing movements, of trying to understand, and that was all wasted, that all I needed to do was get up with an Aussie accent, and uh, I'd be fine. So um, it's good to be here. I uh, came in first uh, a week or so ago, uh, landed in uh, Dallas, Texas, and was picked up by a a Texas lady, everything that I would ever hope or expect. You know, she's sort of full of life and uh, loves the Lord. And I just had her pitch. You've you've grown up in First Baptist somewhere, you know. And uh, we get to the car park at the airport, and 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 there's this this thing called a suburban. I have never seen such a big car in all my life. And I understand here that's just sort of middle size. But they call it a suburban because you can get your whole family and neighborhood into this car. And there's still going to be space. And we're driving down the freeway and I've got this sort of image of uh, Nancy. And she says, you know, it, it, this relationship with the Lord, it hasn't always been like this 16 years ago. Uh, my husband and I were hopeless alcoholics, and uh, a neighbor started uh, taking our eleven-year-old daughter along to church, and uh, she found Christ and she started praying for mum and dad. And now, uh, sixteen years later, they've they've turned to Christ. Um, they're now engaged in ministry in women's prisons in uh, in the city of Dallas. And that's why they need the big truck, <laughs> you know, the, the suburban, because they're taking teams into the prisons. And at the heart, this is what Jesus came for, isn't it? This is what movements are about. They're not just about someone's theory or model or a bit of uh, church history. Uh, they're about people like Nancy who have come to know Christ through the, the prayer and witness of an 11-year-old who's been influenced by a neighbor And now they're going into prisons and uh, women are turning to Christ and putting their faith in Him and going on in discipleship. This is what we signed up for. This is what Jesus came for. So I want to begin today with just focusing on where it all began. You know, the day it began. There was a day when Jesus um, shut up His carpenter's shop. And maybe his brothers fought over which of the tools they'd get to use and he heads down out of the Galilean hill country and he's headed down towards the Jordan where his cousin John is baptizing repentant sinners he's been announcing to Israel that God is going to judge his people so it's time to repent it's time to turn back to God and they're going out in their thousands into the wilderness to be baptized uh, by John in the Jordan. And if I was Jesus, I would have a little sign around, on you know, hanging off my uh, tunic there and I, it would say, uh, I'm identifying with sinners. I'm actually not a sinner myself. You know, because no one knows Jesus from anyone else. They just assume. Here's someone like us going out Uh, to the Jordan uh, to be baptized by John to confess his sins and to repent and he identifies with repentant Israel he identifies with sinful Israel and goes out to be baptized this is the day when it all begins because Jesus has been living a fairly normal life in Nazareth and now He'll return to Nazareth, but he'll return as coming king and Messiah, as saviour. And so he's turned his back on Nazareth as the place where he grew up. And and he's going to launch the movement. The kingdom is coming and he's come to proclaim that message and to call people to repentance and faith. But it's not beginning quite yet because he's going to be baptised. And he's going to be tested in the wilderness. These two stories in Luke and in Matthew and a short account in Mark are everything we need to know. So that means, you know, in about an hour you can just head home, you know, because you've got it all. All right. Well, there's a few other things we can build on that. So you can stay around. But they're everything. What is the father riding on the heart of the son at the launch of this incredible move of God? What is of absolute, central, foundational importance? Well, you're going to answer that question in a moment because I'm going to break you up into some groups and we're going to read Luke's account of Jesus' baptism in wilderness, the preparation to launch the movement, and we're going to talk about What do we learn about Jesus? What's the father writing on his heart? Because we don't surpass him. So everything that is in Jesus' heart in preparation for this great move of God needs to be in our heart. And we're gonna do all the strategy stuff and the tools and the methods and the plans, all of that, but it's gotta be built on what we learn in these two short stories. So I'm going to write up the reference on the board in just a moment, but I'm going to tell you it's Luke chapter 3, verse 21 to 22. And just by way of interest, be amazed at what Luke can fit into two verses. (laughs) Luke chapter 3, 21 to 22, and then Luke chapter 4, 1 to 14. And I'm going to unsettle you. You're going to meet two fresh faces here. And I know I hate it when speakers get me to do this. So this is my chance to inflict on you the opportunity to step out of your comfort zone, meet someone new and discover what God's doing in their world. Because if you're going to be a missionary, you're going to have to learn to do that. And there's people in this room who are signed up for what you're signed up for. and You need to meet them. So I'll write up the reference on the board. I want you to go find two fresh faces, okay? So note, because by the time we've got about three people, it's really hard to discuss when you've got the rows. So just groups of two or three. And we'll talk about what do we learn about Jesus. Off you go while I write up on the board. Okay, let's... um, Come back together. Stay wherever, be wherever you would like to be. If you like the new people better than the old people, stay. (laughs) Okay. Apologies for not muting my microphone. And all those things I said about George, they, they were just in jest, honestly. Okay. So, what do we learn about Jesus? He knows who he is. He knows who he is. How do you know he knows who he is? Where do you find that in the story? Father told him. him. Yeah. He hasn't hasn't launched the mission yet. But he is the much loved son in whom the Father is placed. The Spirit is all over this. Yeah. Where do you see evidence of the Spirit? of the spirit to Galilee. And you just I mean the, the spirit leading Jesus and driving Jesus is just saturated in that Yeah. In such a compressed text just in those two verses in Luke three there there's two references. There's, the spirit <laughs> is front and center in these stories. Yeah. What else do you learn about Jesus? Yeah, so he identified with our sin through baptism. And he identified with us in temptation in the wilderness. So he's fully God and fully human, has a real human experience. Yeah. What else do you learn about Jesus? He's true Adam and true Israel. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've got too many people with a good theological education here. <laughs> but he is. He is he is not true Adam. He is he is the one who's faced tempt- temptation on, and overcome. And he is, you know, my beloved son is Israel. And he is the true Israel. Yeah. But he didn't use anything else of what God has given us as well. God's word and prayer. Yeah, God's word and prayer are his are his weapons against the enemy. He leads by example. What else do you learn about Jesus? Steve, I was just thinking about how tired and weak and exposed he was and how he didn't debate. He just went right into yeah. and he spoke the word and let it speak for himself. Yeah. No debate. We'll just let the word settle this. Right. And he's the living word of God, but he submits himself to God's word. Come to fulfill it. Anything else? Yeah. Like in the temptation narrative, he seems just super loyal to the Father and settled in the Father's affirmation of him. The yeah. Temptations are. If you are my son, it doesn't seem too jolted by that because he was just affirmed as the beloved son. He knows who he is. So what was sort of re- revealed in glory and power in the baptism, is now tested. It's about His identity and what sort of Savior or Messiah He's going to be. There's another way of translating it is not if you are the Son of God, but look, since you're the Son of God, you should fulfill your mission this way. Anything else you noticed? Yeah. And how did you see that in the stories? Well, in one of the temptations, the devil says, here's all of the kingdoms I'll give it to you now. Don't forget, forget about that other stuff. You don't yeah. have to do there. And he, he knew that that was what he needed to do. And instead of just getting rid of the whole dying and suffering part, yeah, he, he knew what God's timing was and it wasn't his timing yet to be coming. Yeah. His timing and his way. and. Uh, Actually, if you you delve into the the Greek, it's some thought that what the enemy was offering him was, you know, that he would tweak his Facebook account so that he would just get this message out. (laughs) 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 Okay. So, identity. There's a lot we could draw out of these two stories, these foundational stories. I'm just going to draw your attention to three keys. And one of them is, he's the obedient, surrendered, loving son of the Father and he will obey the Father's word. And even though he is the Son of God and the living word of God, he will place his self under the authority of God's word. So God's Word isn't just sounds on the airwaves or print on a piece of paper. God's Word is God in action. When He speaks, stuff happens. The universe is thrown into existence and sustained by the living Word of God. So this is God in action. And Jesus has come To fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the scriptures. Isn't it amazing? When the father speaks to the son, he quotes the Old Testament. You know, behold, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's quoting Isaiah and Psalms. That's how powerful God's word is. And the only weapon that Jesus has to respond... I mean, Jesus could have just done the maybe Harry Potter thing and just zap, you're gone. But He just quotes the living Word of God because it's powerful, because it's God Himself in action. The whole story, the whole biblical narrative is about God speaking And seeking a response from us. And we know how in the garden, Adam and Eve placed their word above God's word. Has God God said? And so Jesus is the true Adam, the true Israel, and He's going to obey the word of God. I remember someone saying, well, we don't worship the Bible, we worship Jesus. It's not about the Bible, it's about Jesus. And that's true, except what's Jesus' relationship with the Scriptures, with the living Word of God? It's one of obedience. It's one of affirmation. This living Word and the reason why movements rise and fall it's because the word does the work. And so throughout the book of Acts, well even before, let's before we get to that whole story, let's just think for a moment when Jesus rises from the dead, he confronts a dispirited, failed, <laughs> dismayed, scattered group of disciples. And he's got to draw them back together and turn them into a missionary movement. So what does He do? You know, if Jesus interrupted (laughs) this lecture and came through that door or through the wall, however He likes, you know, we'd be flat on our faces. And after we pick ourselves up from worship and adoration, we would want to hear from the Lord Jesus. Is that true? Yeah. And you know what He would say? Pull out your Old Testaments. We're going from Genesis to Malachi. This is what He's doing over the 40 days after He's risen from the dead, before Pentecost, He's reconstituting and birthing this missionary movement and he's opening the scriptures to them. We don't even have the New Testament yet. <laughs> Luke's up there. I don't know if he was at Pentecost, but he's someone's there writing it all down. That's how central the word of God is to the rise and fall of movements. And then in the book of Acts, if you look, there's a number of summary statements and they're all about. Now, these are theologically um, uh, inaccurate statements because they don't make sense to me. How can the Word of God grow? How can it multiply? You know, But it does because wherever the Word of God goes, the fruit of that is multiplying disciples and churches to the glory of God. And that's the story of Acts. So by the time we Do we think sort of the second half is all about Paul? No, it's about the spread of the living word of God. So at the end of Acts, Paul's in, uh, uh, not chained up, but he's uh, under house arrest. Uh, He's restricted, maybe facing death. um, But the word of God is still going out. Okay. So movements rise or fall the degree to which they surrender to the living word of God. So when the culture shifts and all of a sudden church leaders go quiet or they bow the knee about something so central as human sexuality and what the Bible teaches about marriage, you know they're headed for trouble because they've placed their word above God's word. Okay? I'm not saying you have to be a cultural warrior, but it, you, you do have to place your life and ministry and the people of God under the living word of God and follow the example of Jesus. It's absolutely. A, you cannot have a move of God unless the word is central. And not just this is not just the word um, on Sunday morning and at the midweek Bible study and in the college lecture room, okay? You know how many sermons in a church we have recorded in the book of Acts? None. All the messages, well, we've got that message to the Ephesian elders, okay? But every other message is out in the marketplace. The Word does the work. You cannot contain it to the church service. You cannot contain it to your library. And so if it's the Word, the living Word of God, it's breaking out and transforming lives. Otherwise, there's something missing. You you can feel like, well, we're, we're orthodox, Steve. Well, I'm just telling you, this Word cannot be contained. It does the work. This is how Jesus lived and ministered. He is under the authority of the word. He's ensuring that the word is spreading and lives are being transformed. Then, um, oh, by the way, I'm go- I, I, this morning, you, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know. Okay? Because we never get beyond this. We have to keep coming back to it. If we're going to see a sustained move of God, and then it's the Spirit, dependency on the Holy Spirit who is hovering over the waters at creation. And so God creates through His Word and His Spirit. And He continues to speak through Moses, through the prophets. And they speak by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit inspires the living Word of God. Jesus doesn't even get born without the Holy Spirit. That's how dependent He is in His humanity. And when He is conceived, you know, His cousin John is jumping (laughs) inside His mother's womb Pointing to the Lord Jesus. And when he's born, you know, there's Anna and Simeon and they're bringing glory to the Lord Jesus under the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, at his baptism, the Spirit comes upon him as he's coming up out of the waters and he's in prayer. At that moment. Luke's the only writer, I'm pretty sure, that says he's praying as he comes out of those waters, and the spirit comes upon him in power. Now, next time somebody, you know, says, Let me pray and ask the Spirit to come along upon you with power, run as far as you away from them as you can. Okay? The Holy Spirit is dangerous. Because I think it's Mark says, it's as though the spirit cast drove Jesus into the wilderness. Same word we use for um, casting out a demon. So Jesus is thrown into the wilderness to confront pure evil. So, I mean, it would be incredible at your baptism to hear the audible voice of God and the Spirit to send upon you. And the next day, you're facing the devil in the wilderness and you're still in the center of God's will, filled and empowered by the Spirit, but you're alone. You're not hearing the voice of the Father audibly anymore and you're hungry and you're tired and He's coming at you. The Spirit is guiding this mission. Jesus rose from the dead and comes to us in the person of the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit. I know your history. You've had weird stuff happen in your history. If you're Southern Baptist here or Methodist, okay, really strange stuff. But how do you know that it's a work of God? When Jesus is glorified. The Spirit comes in power to bear witness to the Lord Jesus. He does a lot of other stuff in us and through us, transforming us. But it's not just a work of the Spirit when you're in 24-7 prayer and worship, for instance. How long between Pentecost And when they hit the streets with the living word, was it five minutes or was it 50 minutes? When the spirit comes in power, the word goes out bearing witness to the Lord Jesus and the fruit is reproducing disciples and churches to the glory of God. That's what the spirits come to do. So now you know what true north is when you see a work of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Word. It's the Spirit. And throughout, just go home tonight, read the book of Acts again. Look for the spread of this dynamic Word. Look for the role of the Holy Spirit in guiding and shaping this mission. Be amazed at how weak God's people are, but somehow through the word and the Holy Spirit and their trust and dependence through shipwrecks, through church splits, you know, through persecution. And yet somehow this work of God continues to move forward. It's a wonderful thing. You know, I've been captivated recently by what God is doing in uh, specifically Rio de Janeiro, in the favelas, the slums, and in the prisons of Rio. And it's happening all over Latin America. A work of the Holy Spirit and the living word. You know, there are 10 to 15% of prisoners in the darkest places of the prisons in Rio who have turned and believed on Jesus. Now, normally when you, because the, the gangs control the prisons. When you step into a prison, that's when the state's authority and presence <coughs> is gone. And the only way you can survive in, in a Rio prison or a Brazilian prison is if you're in a gang. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, the churches in prison, run by prisoners who've turned and believed, are like gangs. They're strict. There's discipline. They wear the same sort of um, clothes. They have a sort of because all the gangs have their their markers. They have their war cry in the in the morning. You know, red. There's red commander. One of the murderous, vicious drug. Uh, selling gangs and they do their war cry but earlier than half an hour earlier than that the Christians are up you know crying out to the Lord and they're respected in the favelas and and in the in the prison systems of Brazil so if you leave one of the gangs you're a dead man they'll kill you just how it is except if you turn and believe because they respect the Christians. The Christians never affirm what they're doing in the favelas or the prisons. They never bless that. But you know, if the believers, the leaders of the church on the outside in the favelas, if they encounter the gang, and they often do, they will stop, they will inquire, how are you doing? How's your family? Can we pray for you? And these guys have got, I mean, they literally got like, gold chains dripping off them and weapons and, you know, um, and they'll stop, they'll bow their heads and then the pastor or the church leader will sort of entreat them to turn to Christ. And they respect because they don't take the side of the government. I mean, the police have their solution to the gangs. They just execute people, thousands of them. When there's a riot in the prisons, They'll call in uh, someone from the outside who will be a church leader and and they'll negotiate peace between the gangs. But if you leave one of the gangs to become a Christian and you live a double life, you keep dealing drugs, you keep seeing, because you can see prostitutes in prison, you keep uh, using prostitutes, they'll kill you. Which is sort of an incentive for discipleship, don't you think? (laughs) (laughs) This is a work of the Holy Spirit. You know, we're a bit more restrained here in in Southeastern and in in whatever typically church you're from. And they're a bit wild, (laughs) the Pentecostals, just like you used to be uh, on the frontier 100 years ago or more. 150 years ago. But God is doing something wonderful throughout Latin America within the prison systems. Thousands have turned and believed. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Okay. The mission. I don't like this word. Because we started out a hundred years ago, we had missionaries, and then we had missions, and then, very significantly, we dropped the S and we had mission. And now, in our well, your generation, we now have missional. So, in a hundred years, we've been discussing, debating, and holding conferences about what our mission is. And that says to me, we have no idea. So we've just said everything is mission. Whatever good things you do is the mission of God. Okay? And in one sense it is. But there's only one core missionary task. And everything is the fruit and the byproduct of that. I'm not an organic gardener. But I'm sure there are many good disciples of Jesus who are. And it's a wonderful thing to do. Get rid of all those pesticides and stuff. Reduce a bit of carbon emissions and things. But organic gardens are not our mission. Okay? It may be something we do for a hobby or just to be a blessing and get to know people who have that heart. And you're thinking, why did he just say that? Because I can can point you to church planting conferences and the strategy is, you know, the mission of God is about saving the planet and so I'm, I'm doing organic gardens or coffee shops or kingdom businesses. Where on earth did we get kingdom businesses from? Okay, now there can be kingdom this and that, there's all sorts of missional this and that, but there's only one core missionary task. So what are the temptations come to do? They're not just challenging Jesus' identity, they're challenging what sort of saviour and messiah he'll be. So Jesus, if you can just summon up bread whenever you need it, people will follow you. You know, that's not just sustenance, but prosperity. If you can give people stuff, they'll want to make you king. And in John 6, they come to make Jesus king by force because he can give them bread. The Roman emperors, they wanted to give their people bread and circuses. It's like Netflix and, and bread, prosperity, the good life. Now, does Jesus want to give hungry people bread? It's not a trick question. Yes. Does God want to feed the hungry? Yes. But when they come to make Him king by force because you gave us the bread, but we're not going to submit to you as the bread of life, Jesus walks away. So the mission of God isn't just giving people bread, even though that's the heart of God and it's the fruit of being a disciple. If you don't care for the poor, You don't understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But the core missionary task is not bread. It's the bread of life. And then the enemy comes and says, look, jump off this high tower. You know, it's a bit like a bungee jump. And you'll go down and then instead of the elastic cord pulling you back up, the angels will rescue you. Jesus... Does He want to heal the sick? Does He want to do signs and wonders that point to who He is? Yeah. He's moved with compassion. And He heals. He casts out demons. He does signs and wonders. He curses a fig tree. What was that about? <laughs> Poor old fig tree, you know. But He does not But doing signs and wonders isn't the core missionary task. It's no good raising someone from the dead if you're not going to share the gospel with them. He's the resurrection and the life. He raises the dead and He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And He pronounces God's judgment on those cities and towns that saw the signs and wonders and did not turn and believe and follow him in discipleship. Somehow we think that signs and wonders will compel belief. It does, they don't. They're signs to those whom God is working in their heart, and this is what convinces them to put their faith, not in the sign and one, but in the Lord Jesus who raises the dead. The Lord Jesus who gives sight to the blind. They point to him. So the core missionary task is not signs and wonders. It's not bread. And then finally, the enemy, in Luke's account, I think it is, there's a different order in Matthew. Um, finally, he says, Jesus, you can have it all. I'll give you the kingdoms of this world in all of their power and glory. If you just bow down and worship me, it's a simple transaction. The enemy is offering Jesus political and cultural power. The core missionary task is not the culture wars. Whether you're on the left or the right. It's not getting the right person in the White House. Or getting the wrong person out. Now. Does God care? Does He tell us to pray for rulers? Does He care about us being good citizens and influencing the political culture? Yes, but it's not the core missionary task. You could save America and lose America at the same time. Because ultimately, without the gospel, you're going to have to apply force to get people to do the right thing. And I'm not saying that government shouldn't have sanctions, you know, the scriptures are clear. They're given for a purpose. There's a lot of talk today is we're going to transform our city. Okay, let's list the cities that were transformed in the gospels and acts. Just give me the first one. Anyone got a city transformed? Sure, Jerusalem was transformed into a riot. Okay? Ephesus Ephesus was transformed into a riot. Okay? There's no problem. You know, Paul stands before Nero in chains. He hasn't come to advise him on social policy and housing. Okay? Which was a big problem in Rome. That's another story. Now, some of you may hear me saying, Steve, well, that stuff doesn't matter. It does matter. Okay? Where we lose it, it's this this little tweak that somehow, somehow the kingdom is going to come and transform the world. Well, it will come at the end of the age, but there's no promise of a golden age before. Jesus promised us trouble and persecution, okay? The core missionary task, what is it? Well, Jesus is saying no to the bread. He's saying no to the signs and wonders. He's saying no to cultural and political power as a means of bringing in the kingdom. And he's saying yes to the cross. His death for the sins of the world. Oh, you're just about saving souls. You bet I am. Do you know what that means? When someone is lost and headed for eternity without God, they're broken, they're hurting, their lives are destructive, they're addicted to alcohol or sports, (laughs) you know. And Jesus brings us from darkness into light. So when everyone says, oh, that's just saving souls, Just take them to the living word of God. But it isn't just saving souls because discipleship is about learning to obey the Lord Jesus. It's about learning to love your neighbor. It's about learning to be a good citizen and a a member of your community. It's about healing families, being freed of alcoholism. It's about bringing uh, life and truth into the darkest places in the world prison system of uh, Rio de Janeiro and those Pentecostal pastors are not running political campaigns and I'm not saying no one ever should do that. They're just finding the next person who is lost and bringing them into the kingdom and teaching them how to follow the Lord Jesus in the situation in which he found them. That's the core missionary task. The multiplication of disciples and churches to the glory of God throughout the world. Every segment of society, every people, every tribe, every tongue. Just in two little stories in the life of Jesus, everything's built on this. This is Jesus' identity. You say, well, wait a minute. How can mission be His identity? You know, we have the Father, our love for God. It's just Jesus and the Father. So, you know, doing stuff, well, that's that's an extra thing, okay? You know, I, I, I love God first and then I minister. And that's just way down third priority or something. No. If you have... The Father and the Spirit, you have the mission of God. He cannot but seek out the lost and people far from God. Jesus' identity is what grounds His mission. He cannot be anything but going out to incorporate us into the community and the love of the Trinity. God has, this is not just because of the fall. This is in eternity past. This is what God is like. And it's what He wants to build into our hearts over the whole course of our lives. And it's what fuels the rise of movements and the fall of movements. There's other stuff we build on this, but this is everything. So in your groups, just share. What's God spoken to you? About your identity and what it means for you. What's one thing that's challenged you in this last session? And then take a bit of time to pray for one another. Okay, just where you are, make your response. What's God saying to you? And then pray for one another. We'll give you about five, five bit more minutes to do that. Off you go. So far. Any questions? Yes, no one's brave enough to question or challenge the idea that it's all about the life and ministry of Jesus. <laughs> uh, I, I just wanted to ask, so in, in those passages in particular, yeah. um, where, where, do you, where do you see that tie of like Jesus' mission as, as the core, of, of, part of the core of identity? I, I believe that. Yeah. Can you like Well, is baptism pointing forward to his the cross and the resurrection. Him he's specifically, he's there he doesn't need to be baptized. He's there to be, to identify with repentant sinners and he will be baptized pointing forward to his willingness to fulfill his mission by going and dying on the cross and rising again. And then um those challenges, those temptations, I would read it as, as more rather than if you're the son of God, more since you're the son of God, since you're the Messiah, why don't you do this? Now it doesn't all stand or fall on that interpretation, but that it, that the enemy is trying to divert his mission. And what he chooses instead is humble he's the suffering servant of Isaiah, humble submission uh, to the Father and willingness to, to die for the sins of the world. That that, you know, the redemption of humanity through the message of the cross and then following on to discipleship and church formation is what he's come to found and to do. Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. Now, he's a big boy, so he can, he can be criticized. He's perhaps our generation's greatest New Testament scholar. He certainly would be in the, the, the final few. Well, in Surprised by Joy, he writes, um, you know, we need to go from the worshipping sanctuary, he's an Anglican, and into the marketplace where we're sort of pursuing things like traffic flow, green zones, childcare, um, and all of these things. And then he says, you know, these aren't peripheral to our mission. They are central. Okay, we'll read that out to a North Korean or an impoverished Nigerian. Okay, now, do they need to be a blessing to their village do they or their prison cell if they're in North Korea? Yes, they're probably not going to change the system, all right? But they can be disciples and their lives are being shaped into the image of the Lord Jesus and they're in community with one another. They will be a blessing, Okay. Just, it's 10.02, is it? Um, whose alarm went off first? Who heard an alarm first? Where? Okay. You or? Yeah. Your name's Scott and your. Bailey. Bailey. Just explain to the room why your alarm went off. okay and so your alarm you're you're getting extra there you're twice a day your alarm goes off (laughs) I'm talking to Bailey we're not assuming that you're doing that Scott Um, and you pray Bailey would you just show us how you pray and do that now yeah Amen. Thank you. Some of you may want to set your clocks now. Okay. Uh, Any other questions about what we've covered so far? All right. So, just before we go to the break, this is what's driving. This is why movements rise and fall. Here you've got our identity, word, spirit, the core missionary task. (coughs) the life and ministry of Jesus. And over time, that's that's what's driving the rise of movements, the multiplied disciples and churches to the glory of God. But we tend to stray. We tend to lose it. We tend to settle down. And as we do that, there's a delayed impact. There's always a time lag. Because this is our strategy. This is how we pursue movements. And if we look um, at the patterns in Jesus' life and ministry, you'll see the identity piece we've looked at. But there are also, you know, Jesus didn't just stay in the wilderness or on the mountaintop praying and fasting. You know, he He hit the ground running in the power of the Holy Spirit, and He is setting people free. And right from the beginning, He's identified, He's building a fishing pool of pioneering leaders who will go to the ends of the earth. So one of the first things He does is, come follow me, I'm going to teach you how to fish. I'm going to teach you how to make disciples. So He's raising up pioneering leaders. And the movement, is spreading, not all the time, but typically through networks of pre-existing relationships. It's just because we're made in the image of God, it's how humanity works through networking. So even the way he recruits his disciples is through relationships. It's going one to the other. The first um, missionary into that Samaritan village is a Samaritan woman. Jesus' strategy for reaching... 10 pagan cities called the Decapolis on the east side of the Jordan is I'm just going to find me a demonized man. (laughs) Okay, and he's going to go and gossip the gospel throughout his world. He's rapidly mobilizing ordinary people, not just the leaders who are literally going to go to the ends of the earth, but it's the woman at the well. It's Zacchaeus. There he is. And we don't have a record, but let's make it up. You know, Jesus is at a meal with Zacchaeus. And Mrs. Zacchaeus is calming down after all the, all the things that have been going on. And they're eating some falafel and some unleavened bread, a bit of yogurt. And Jesus is practicing with Zacchaeus what he's going to go out and say to his whole community. He's going to bear witness to the Lord Jesus. And what does he know? You know, it's been an hour at most, maybe, maybe two hours, long lunch. And people are waiting around and they're going to hear from Zacchaeus. So he rapidly mobilizes ordinary people. And then finally, his, he, here are his adaptive methods. You know, here is his theological and biblical education. Guys, come follow me. <laughs> We're going to go fish. <laughs> okay, here's his missions budget. Guys, and occasionally girls. Sometimes it was a whole tribe of people, both men and women. I think it's a verse in in Luke 8 that gives us a glimpse to that. Um, We're going on mission. Okay, empty out your pockets. (laughs) The plan is you'll trust God to provide through people you're going to lead to Him. Let's go. Zero dollar missions budget. Now, I'm not saying you have to do it that way. But Jesus' methods are all contagious. They're simple and they're powerful and profound. Who knows the story of the prodigal son? Okay. Who could tell it if you had to? Right. Who could train a 10-year-old to tell the story? You wouldn't need much training. You just tell them the story. Of the prodigal son and that story goes, and we, we forget. You know, I, I, am I'm, I'm, I'm the son of a Baptist missionary and 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 pastor, so I've known the story of the prodigal son for a very long time. And it was a few years ago, Michelle pioneered a whole ministry to internationals in our area, and um, we're doing uh, English conversation club and then Discovery Bible. And I get up to tell the story of the prodigal son. And I didn't know it like I thought. I, should, you know, I read the thing and had to learn to retell it. And all of a sudden, there are these verses that the Holy Spirit had added to the Scripture since I'd read it before. <laughs> and right in the middle, there's this, uh, this son of mine was dead and now he has He is alive. I'd never seen that before. And I get up, I'm telling the story in my own words, and we get to, he was dead and now he's alive, and I choke up. You know, I have to pause and just get my composure. I've known the story for 50 years, and it's still doing the work on my heart. And four people from four different nations came up to me at the end and said, Where did you get that story from? It's incredible. Okay? This is, it's not just an adaptive method, but telling stories, memorable sayings. This is how Jesus is teaching. Everything he does. I mean, where is the manual, Jesus? Where is the constitution for the church at Jerusalem? I mean, you didn't even give us clear enough instructions on how to include the Gentiles. Where's the strategic plan, Jesus? Now, all of those things come, but it's adaptive methods. You know what? I understand you folks can't go beyond 10 past 10 without some more coffee and food. (laughs) So we're going to stop right there in mid-sentence and we're going to come back at what time, George? 10.30. 10.30. So, and we'll tell you what's up here. Identity strategy, and we'll talk about methods and tools. Let's take a break till half past ten.